Hello, and welcome to Mother Daughter Earthcast, a show that will help you navigate the eco world and live a more colorful and conscious life. We'll inform, inspire, and embolden you. And most importantly, we'll have fun along the way to a more planet-caring lifestyle together. Public space and access to a community gathering area is so important to building strong, resilient communities. I always consider a park and a gathering space or trails, for example, to be where all social issues tend to collide. We believe that every citizen has the right to have a green space, a park within a 10 minute walk of their home. Welcome back to another episode of Mother Daughter Earthcast. This is Mariana Archibald, and today is going to be a little different and a little sad too. My mom isn't here with me because we have been having quite a cold snap here in Dallas, Texas. And let me tell you, us Texans do not like being on the road at the slightest hint of snow or ice, which is for the best. (laughs) We don't really know what to do with it. So my mom and I have been playing it safe this week and just staying in our respective homes. And for those of y'all who ask me all the time, no, we don't live together. We do have separate homes. (laughs) I get this question a lot. It seems like I spend a lot of time with my mom, (laughs) which is great. But Unfortunately, she's not here with me today, so I have the pleasure of introducing the amazing Elise Alvarado. Elise is the program manager for Green Schoolyards here in Dallas, also known locally as Cool Schools, and she and her team do an amazing job of just transforming, truly transforming areas that are used as school playgrounds and then making them public spaces for the community to enjoy and to have access to green space. It's such a great program and they are adding so much to the Dallas area. It was really an inspiring conversation and we touch on the need for access of green space and how important that is and social equity when it comes to sustainability and urban planning and the importance of community. And Elise is driven by this concept of creating community. And she's just such an awesome person, such a light here in Dallas. And we loved talking with her. On a more personal note, I also love Elise and I hope we can be friends and hang out once we are not social distancing. Um, She's just doing so much for the community here in Dallas. And she taught me a lot about community when it comes to sustainability and and social equity and having access to parks. I mean, I had heard a lot about and done, you know, a fair amount of research into food deserts, but had not really spent much time looking into the concept of park deserts. And it's such an important concept and a very key element of urban planning that we should all be aware of. And Elise was just the perfect person to talk to, to opening our eyes into the possibilities of what a space can actually mean for a community and the multi-use purposes for a space. They can be both educational, you know, access to green area and serve as a playground for a school all at the same time. So way to go, Elise and your amazing team. And also, I know we do give a shout out to DISD, which is the Dallas Independent School District in the episode, but I want to definitely give DISD, the city of Dallas and all of their work with 
the cool schools or green schoolyards and the trust for public land and all of the amazing work that they've been doing to try to create a more equitable green community. <laughs> it's great. I've been doing a little bit of volunteering with DISD. Shout out to our trustee, Ben Mackey, who has been an amazing spearhead for green initiatives for the school district. And it was just great touching base with Elise and absorbing all of her knowledge and wisdom about creating green spaces that also act as community anchors, school playgrounds, and just a place to go and relax and enjoy being outdoors. And what's amazing is that this can be replicated around the country and around the world. So it's such an inspirational story and their work is doing amazing things for Dallas. So can you tell I'm super excited about our chat with Elise and to learn more about green schoolyards or cool schools. Before we get into our talk with her, I wanted, of course, to ask if you could please go rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It really helps as we continue to grow. It helps us gain more visibility and share these amazing stories with more people and just spread the eco-positivity and love. I love it. I'm sorry y'all didn't get my mom and her bubbly personality today, but she will indeed be back for the next episode. Hopefully we won't be iced in for much longer, although Whiskey is loving it. Whiskey is my husky dog, and he's just born for this. He loves being out in the snow, and we're hopefully going to take him to the park in just a little bit and just enjoy our snowy day here in Dallas, our snowy Valentine's Day. So it's a rare treat for us, although I am really hoping that my plants make it through because this is unseasonably cold for North Texas, but hopefully it will all be great. And we've been covering them up and getting them as toasty as possible. So doing everything that we can for our plants. Okie doke. Well, without further ado, please join me in welcoming the amazingly vibrant Elise Alvarado to Mother Daughter Earthcast. Welcome back to Mother Daughter Earthcast. We are here with Elise Alvarado and Elise and I had the amazing opportunity to chit chat the other day for I think about 45 minutes. It was only supposed to be like a 15 minute check in, but I'm convinced she's like my long lost friend. So it went way longer. So we are so excited to share her expertise with y'all and talk about some really amazing programs and projects that Elise is involved with with cool schools. So Elise, welcome to Mother Daughter Earthcast. Thank you for being with us and tell our listeners a bit about you, your background and the amazing work that you are doing with cool schools. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I definitely agree as someone who makes a lot of phone calls and sends a lot of emails. It was such a relief to be able to say, you know, I'll let this phone call go a little longer. So I definitely am on the same page as you with that. Um, well, a little bit about my background. I have definitely hopped around a lot and am constantly surprised about what I get to do every day. I didn't know what I do as a job. Um, <laughs> but um, I graduated with a degree in international relations. I'd always love to travel and always love to kind of learn new things from other people and other places. And um, after graduation, I worked with a local nonprofit here in Dallas called Cafe Momentum. So if any of your listeners... Oh, yeah. Uh, That's yeah, a, it's a wonder, nice wonderful organization. 
Yes, I loved growing with that team and loved being in that environment. But very quickly, I was like, okay, I'm ready to get out and travel again and improve my Spanish. And so that took me to Spain for about two and a half years and I taught English. Um, and in that time, I, I continued with my nonprofit work um, around uh, refugee um, immigration issues in Spain because that's something that they also struggle with uh, there. And came back really wanting to invest in my own community. Uh, a lot of changes happened in 2016, and I kind of felt disconnected from my country and wanted to come back and improve things in the way, way I could. Um, and so I uh, worked as a policy fellow for a few months and then worked um, at a nonprofit called Kaboom, which, uh, you know, as a parks and recreation fan, if any of you have seen that show, it is a real nonprofit. They have a whole <laughs> episode about it. Um, but that's really where I learned about how cities and urban issues, there's nothing to mistake in an urban environment. Um, Kaboom's mission was bringing play to kids. So it was as simple as, you know, we would get private funding or donation funding, like Disney, for example, or CarMax would come to Kaboom and say, hey, we want to invest, we want to give a playground to this city or this town. Um, and my job, what I was a community outreach coordinator, I was building relationships and figuring out, okay, what cities in California or Ohio or Texas um, really are in need of these play structures. Um, and I wasn't particularly passionate about playgrounds, right? Like my path has jumped around a lot, but really kind of approach everything I do as like community at the heart of whatever my choices tend to be. Mm. And so the playground was the obvious choice, but why I was really drawn to it was the understanding that public space and access to a community gathering area is so important to building strong, resilient communities. Mm -hmm. um, and through that job, you know, especially, I would say, I think a lot of us kind of like, there's been a lot of social upheaval in the past few years, um, but I think a lot of us have been awakened or reminded that inequity exists in so many different ways. Um, and so really seeing just from my desk in DC and seeing rural and urban communities, yes, they don't have a playground, but I think when I'm having these conversations with leaders and church members and pastors or whoever it is that I'm talking to, I always consider a park and a gathering space or trails, for example, to be where all social issues tend to collide, right? Mm -hmm. So if I can say there's not a park in this neighborhood, most often, you know, there are high, there are a lot of health issues, there um, are a lot of, you know, food insecurity, there are all these other things that kind of collide in that public space. And so that's really where I became obsessed with like, wow, I never knew about, you know, historic racist urban planning policies, such as redlining, right? And I'm from Dallas and I could look at a map of Dallas in 1920 and as someone who grew up in South Dallas would say, oh, wow, like I'm not a crazy one, right? I can look at the maps now in 2020 and see how those practices have continued and affected our communities. And so a lot of my path was really, you know, yes, it's been all over the place, but with that job at Kaboom, I think on face value, everyone loves a playground, right? But when you get into it, there are so many layered issues. So um, at the end of 2019, being in DC, it's, it's an exciting place to live. You feel like you're around all the movers and shakers, but I really became so, I think a little bit disconnected and exhausted from feeling so detached from communities themselves, right? Of being the receiver of all of these issues and information and wanting to say, you know what? I'm from a city that has a lot of issues and a lot of things to work on. And so why don't I try to go back home? And so. I found this current role that I'm in. I'm a program manager for, um, we, we, it's Cool Schools is the name of the program, but I'm here at TPL, the Chester Public Land, we call it Green Schoolyards. And so this job really takes all of those 
emotions and learning experiences I had and put it into one position. And so we're working on creating park equity and access to green spaces around um, the city of Dallas. And so making sure with those communities that don't have access to those parks or green spaces, we're working with them directly to make sure that they have those spaces. So um, yeah, a little bit of my background, very uh, all over the place, but it's always a fun time. It is not all over the place. And from someone who I think this is what one of the things we bonded on, I my path has been very nonlinear. And yours, I see a very common thread throughout. So not not all over the place. Very interesting is what I would say. And I can't believe the layers of complexity in in parks. I've just never thought of them as so multi-layered. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I'm constantly surprised by it as well. Because I think when I took the job at Kaboom, you know, I took it because I was like, wow, DC, playgrounds, you know, like, why not? It seemed really innovative. And then to learn how multi-layered they are and um, how much of it is so intertwined in our history as America, as, as an American urban planning, looking at our cities and communities who had those spaces and who doesn't, it is. It's very fascinating. So, Well, continuing on that thread, for listeners who aren't familiar with the term park desert, or food desert. Can you talk a little bit more about that and why um, access to green space is so important? And I believe y'all were, we were doing some research and it's like a 10 minute walk kind of radius, right? And so just talk about what what has science shown in terms of why it's so important to have access to these green spaces? Because I feel like a lot of people don't even think about that as being necessary for overall well-being, especially when it comes to a community, but also on the individual level. Yeah, definitely. I think to kind of start that question, I answer a little backwards. So I think the fact that a lot of us don't think of it as a issue or necessity to begin with is a marker of privilege in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And as someone who grew up in, you know, in South Dallas, but also moved to the suburbs, like, yeah, I had a park, you know, like, yeah, I could walk down the street with my mom and we went to the park or we went to the state park and it was something that you don't think about. And a lot of us don't because we have them, right? Yeah. Um, and so I would say that in itself is what makes the issue so multi-layered as well, um, such as, like you said. Um, and so at the Chester Public Land, we have what we call, we have a heavy GIS data team that uh, created a campaign called the 10-Minute Walk Campaign. So um, I wasn't on board at this time, but in Dallas, it probably started around 2017, where Mayor Rawlings came on and joined this 10-Minute Walk Campaign. And so what that means is that um, in agreement to say, you know, we believe that every citizen has the right to have a green space, a park within a 10 minute walk of their home. So to, to delve into that term, 10 minute walk. Mm-hmm. And so park desert is that is, is not being able to access um, a space for community, a space for health, recreation, um, just being able to take your kid to a park. That's what a park desert is. And without the use of, well, the use of public transportation or some kind of, you know, burden to get to that space to begin with. And in Dallas in particular, that's a pretty, what's one of the biggest barriers to accessing those public spaces is public transport, the way freeways are designed, the way they intersect through neighborhoods. Usually you leave your house and you'll hit, you know, a frontage road, um, Mm -hmm. right? That's just, I think (laughs) in a lot of ways, we all know as Texans for sure. Um, And so I think a lot of the science behind that in terms of why it's so important to have a park or green space I think at face value, truly, and I'm not a scientist in any way, so I will start with that. But I think the most obvious connection is that green space entails nature, 
trees. Um, and we consider an environmental issue at the core of saying, okay, most low income disadvantaged neighborhoods have higher urban temperatures than and maybe a wealthier part of the city, um, which always blew my mind because you wouldn't think, okay, we're in the same city, but if I go from zip code 75211 to a northern zip code, for example, I don't know the zip code of Highland Park, let's say, but those zip codes have different temperatures. And so you're looking at Mm. just the health concern, okay, how do we look at climate resilience going forward? And so the lack of green space contributes to that. Um, And also just public health, right? So if you can't have a place to exercise, if if we live in dense neighborhoods and we live in a lot of apartment dwellings or homes that are closer together, where do we access, you know, a place to relax, a place to unload after a hard mental health day or just being physically active? Um, I think those things seem so obvious at first when you look at the issue, but for a lot of us, I think we've always grown around up around that. Um, mm-hmm. And so the communities I work in, I think what I always find surprising is that just a simple thing of like, oh, I can, we can have a garden. Like I don't have space in my house to have a, a garden. You know what I mean? And so yeah. those are the things that I think are a lot of important drivers. So overall, environmental resilience, public health access. Um, and one thing that I, you know, I'm not sure what the science uh, necessarily contributes to this point, but for me, a lot of what drives the work is the concept of community and community organizing power as a concept. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, it is just a park. Like I'm you know, and I always say, like, I'm not a cardiologist, right? This is not top of the list, especially during COVID. We're not the saviors, right? But I do know that, and I've seen it where someone realizes that, okay, yeah, I don't have a park. And I've had people tell me this. Oh, well, I had to drive to Clyde Warren downtown to get to a park, and I and it takes me 30 minutes to get to be with my kids to be outside. And then they realize that in itself, by you saying that you don't have access, that you want to be heard, that, hey, I want this picnic table. I want this kind of playground. And they have a voice that I don't think people realize they have, especially on a local level, right? So even as someone and all of us, you know, fans of democracy, I think in itself, I geek out because while it is a park at face value, it also becomes a really great um, organizing tool um, to tell people have a voice in the city. So Yes. I so love No, well, you did. And I also loved a, one specifically a small snippet of what you said is, you know, during COVID where, you know, it's just a park or whatnot, but it's just a, it's a park. I mean, like, especially during COVID. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, right. And this is what I think is so awesome from because you and I are coming at this possibly from slightly different perspectives. You are driven and passionate about community and community resilience and and building that strong that those strong ties and human ties. And we come at it a lot from rebuilding the nature ties and from environmentalism and environmental resilience. But I think it's um it's awesome when you see a project or you see an approach or perspective. To me, it just shows that it's the right thing to do when it encompasses all of those things, right? It encompasses community, it encompasses equality and environmentalism and resilience when it comes to all of those things. And I love when projects, as you were saying, at face value, it may seem like just a park, but when you really think about it, it's, you know, it's the right thing to do when it's ticking all of those boxes, right? Right. And right. COVID, I think there's no better time than now 
to highlight these things because I am very grateful and very privileged to live close to Keast Park. It's one of the most amazing parks in southwest Dallas area. And we go almost every day. And we live like a two-minute walk from the park and we take our dog. And I don't know what we would have done during COVID without that. And so... Yeah, that was my little my little spiel. I just think yes, during especially now, like what y'all are doing is so so important. And Mariana and I were talking before the interview that I said, well, I don't have a park near my house. And then Mariana said, but mother, you have the hike and bike trail, and they just opened up a new hike and bike trail just a few minutes from my house within the past year. It has so significantly improved my quality of life here and it has become I, I've met neighbors there and it's at it, it adds so much more to this neighborhood that we were lacking I've my I live in a house that my parents bought in 1975 so I have a, a, a I have my thumb on the heartbeat of this neighborhood and that <laughs> does she what Elise <laughs> let me tell you but it's amazing I, love it. I need your connection <laughs> It's amazing what that hike and bike trail has done it is. for our area. It is really amazing. And I think we all have stories very similar to that. It just, it's just so wonderful to have a place that you don't need money to enjoy. That's always my big yes. thing, too. You know, I think we have all gotten, I know COVID's put a pause on all this, but I always think it's like, well, what's the big thing to do this weekend? You know, what, how can we get this ticket or this brunch or whatever it is? And so I think COVID has really reminded us, you know, the simple things. And I hate to sound like my my great grandma at this point, but the simple things are so important where you can go to a hike and bike trail or, you know, go to a park with your friends and just like chat over coffee. And I think those things have become so important. So that is what I'm excited to be able to see once these parks are fully open and accessible is that, you know, I have moms that are like, oh, can we have a place to sit to have coffee while our kids play? Aww. Great. Like, yes. you know, we love that. So. <laughs> with a tree. Exactly. And, you know, look at what Clyde Warren Park has done for downtown. Has transformed downtown it's amazing but you were we were mentioning trees and I didn't realize how many trees y'all are adding in each of these parks and in schools and can you tell us about you know adding trees and you know how many in these school parks and yeah, yeah, that's really. fascinating. And also, I think we delved right into it. But while you're talking about trees, can you also explain what types of parks you're <laughs> putting in? Because they're not just parks. <laughs> so we like went into it. But for people who aren't familiar with the Cool Schools program or the Green Schoolyards Park program, what do they look like and why are they different and unique and awesome? Extra awesome. <laughs> Definitely. So I'll start with that and then I'll move into the trees. So <laughs> Um, so the 10 minute walk program that I mentioned a little earlier, that's what really spurred this program. So that happened in about 2017. And just so you have a, an understanding of how we look at numbers in the city. So at that point, um, about 60% of the city had access to a park within a 10 minute walk of their home. Um, and so the mayor signed on and said, hey, we really want to get this number up. This is a really important thing for our city. Um, and our partner on this project, Texas Trees Foundation, you might be familiar with, mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, like their name sounds, um, they are experts, the tree experts. And so originally this was truly their program. The Cool School's name um, is their program. And so that program consists of, you know, us going to neighborhoods, doing tree plantings around schools and in front of your house. Um, and they're the ones who kickstarted the idea of saying, hey, if we can 
make this a park and along with the tree plantings, we'll be able to, from their point of view, just have more access to nature um, and they implement a cool schools curriculum. Um, and then in what we call phase two of this program, so I was, I came on in, in January 2020 in another lifetime, um, but <laughs> we have a, a private funder who really came to us and kind of said, hey, go for the moon. You attend Texas trees, so Chester Public Land and Texas trees. Here's a lump sum of money, which we're very grateful for. Work together and let's get this, this park access number up as fast and as quickly as possible to do the most change in the least amount of time. Um, it is an awesome challenge to be given as a uh, nonprofit professional. And you're like, yes, thank you for the money. We will do it. Uh, and so Texas Trees Foundation and TPL um, figured out, okay, well, we can definitely do this. Uh, and so from TPL's end, getting into the weeds here, but I do think it's interesting. TPL, we came at it from a data GIS mapping point of view of saying, okay, we're mapping out the city. Um, we know it's 60%. And so what would it take for us to increase the increased park access in the city? And so very quickly, quickly, our GIS team said, oh, well, Dallas has massive swaths of land that are schools. So, you know, they said, okay, if we did these schools, we would be able to get our access up into the high 70% mm. very quickly within three years. And so that became the solution for us. So GISD and Parks and Recreation, they, um, gave granted us access to go to the school and once a school so a school is designated as a cool school for a very specific reason not all schools qualify because every school is intentionally selected to say okay if we place a school um for example in buckner terrace near pleasant grove that one school once it's open to the public as a community park increases park access in that neighborhood mm -hmm. versus what a traditional traditional park process might mean is, you know, a private developer and a lot of back and forth with the city and blah, blah, blah. But because we're working with private money, we're able to say, thank you, DISD, for letting this come on your campus and give us access. Um, by the end of the three-year uh, cool school program, we'll be up to, I believe, 78% park access. That's amazing. Um, after, yeah, after this program is completed. So it's something we're all very, very um, passionate about. And so to kind of loop back to the rest of your question. So once a school is selected as a cool school, um, the park or the schoolyard is transformed into a community park. So they'll, they'll get a new playground, a loop trail, an outdoor learning classroom and art installations. So that's a part of my work is doing placemaking and learning about the neighborhood to inform those. And then really the cherry on top are the tree plantings that um, you asked about in terms of, okay, not only are we providing a community park space, but we really, especially Texas Trees, wants to make sure that we, we um, mitigate the effects of uh, climate change. So making sure the urban heat islands are solved through um, a very simple way, right? Trees are our friends in so many ways. And so uh, Texas Trees has a, uh, they have foresters on staff who come out to the school site. They survey what trees are there. No trees are removed in the process unless they're dead or, you know, you know, have some issue, I guess. Um, but then, yeah, they, the number of trees varies just depending on what the school needs. Um, but some trees start up a hundred to 300, wow. depending on how big the campus is. It's great. Um, and so the foresters go and tag them and they are connected to that campus probably for the first, I think, don't quote me, but I think it's the first two years in the tree's life. Um, so it is everything that goes on campus is very much 
there for a reason. Um, and then once the park's complete, what marks it as a community park is making sure it's open after hours and on weekends. So people can, you know, go outside, picnic with the family, you know, use the space as their own. And yeah, it's a pretty big program with a lot of pieces, but um, yeah, people are excited about it. That's amazing. I know Mariana wants to ask you a question. I just want to ask something really quick, like though, are y'all planting native trees? Yes. Oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and now I wish I would have roped in Texas trees over here because um, I always relate to them that I'm like, y'all are the tree people. You know, I, I've grown, I've always admired trees, yes, but I don't think I've ever thought about it in the way they do. And now I'm just amazed by how they're like, wow, this is a red bud or whatever it is. And I'm like, also interested. Like, yes, that is. I'm learning as well. So. <laughs> but yes, they are playing native trees. My heart is full. There you go. <laughs> Before, I do want to talk a little bit more about like the educational aspect of your parks and your green spaces. But before that, it's just a random question. What are the logistics of making it, making these spaces a school park or like a schoolyard during the day and then opening it to the public after hours and in the weekends like do you have like gates and lot like what are the logistics of that and how does how does how does that communal space work because I want more people to th- hear this concept and this is I think an amazing example of thinking outside the box and using the resources you already have in a city especially and yes of course that grant and that sum of money is amazing and letting you do this, but you didn't have to create these spaces out of nothing, you know, like the spaces were there, the, you know, people, you know, it's in areas that people are going to use it because it's public schools. It's not like it's in the middle of nowhere. So I just, to give a little bit more detail on the logistics so people can kind of imagine how it all works out. Definitely. So, you know, because none of these schools are completely open yet, I think they'll be officially open end of March after our celebration weeks with the schools. Um, we're not sure on logistics yet, but I can tell you what we think, what we intend, best intentions for it to be. Um, going back a little bit, though, just the way it's even allowed to happen is the contracting between the city, our partners, and Parks and Rec. So, yes, the park's on DISD land. Um, but the city, and I think this is probably the biggest marker of success, is the city is saying, okay, once these parks are open, we're taking over maintenance. Mm. Um, and that's a really big deal because not all schools um, even have the budget to probably maintain the campus they have now. Yeah. And so the city is able to kind of leverage that partnership and, and help take care of them as well. And so that's a big part of it. Um, and so logistics in terms of we tell the schools from the very beginning this is, yes, this is your schoolyard, you maintain the power. So we never want schools to feel that someone's dropping in, dropping apart, doing all this stuff, and you have no say in it. That does not happen in this program from every point of the design to where the loop trail is, right? All those things is the same goes to maintenance of the portals. So um, I guess if you imagine any elementary school you went to or your kids go to or whatever, there's fencing around a school there. And so we maintain the fencing. Um, but we designate it in a very specific way to the community access point, and it's a portal. It's a community portal. So the fencing is all still there, and there's one main entrance for the community to use. And so the school maintains the power to close it if they need to, to open it when they need to. Um, but all the schools have agreed from the very beginning that they this is really important for them, especially the principals who have such a 
um, a unique understanding of, of where their school, what kind of role their school plays in the neighborhood that we haven't had any pushback. It's mostly like, okay, cool. Like if we have field day, we'll be able to close the portal. Um, if we have a parent, you know, PTA meeting or something, we can close the portal. But um, overall that one entrance points gives the power to the campus to decide, but also lets the community know like, hey, this is where we can use the park. This is from, we, this is how we use it. So um, it's a pretty simple logistics thing. I'll let you know how it looks in a year, but um, so far so good. People, you know, the community picks the portal as well. So we have a participatory, which I can get into a little later, but my role um, revolves around gathering community feedback. And so that question of logistics and the, and the community portal, we ask people, okay, would you rather the portal be here or here? And some people are like, no, the traffic's really bad there. Can we have it here? So we really try to keep the, the lines of communication open from the very beginning. That's Interesting. awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Well, af- thank you for that. I seemingly not so random question. It's, I'm sure logistics is a big part of what y'all are doing, but it did give me kind of like more of an, a visual of how it all works out. So thanks for answering that. Now going kind of to pivoting a bit to the school aspect, I would love to hear how y'all are creating spaces as an education tool as well. Um, and you mentioned an outdoor classroom and curriculum so how how is that part of what you're creating and are you working with the teachers to create that and I know the school the you know parks aren't open quite yet but what is the initial reaction already from either the schools or the teachers is this something that they're excited about I'm hopeful hopefully the answer is yes but yeah tell us a little bit more about green spaces and education Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. My, as you talk about this, a teacher emailed me. <laughs> Perfect. Um, <laughs> on cue. <laughs> on cue. Yes. So um, with the schools, we work directly with the schools at every point. Again, from the very beginning, we're meeting with principals. Um, there is an on-campus green team. That's who we call them, consisting of staff, teachers, anyone who gets wants to get involved with campus. And they're really the core group of people who are having a say in playground design, outdoor classroom design, Um, They give us ideas. They give me guidance in terms of who to reach out to within the community. So teachers are playing a big role from the very beginning. Um, Texas Trees Foundation, they maintain the school relationships. And I'm, I serve and I always tell the teachers, I'm more of the bridge between school and community and making sure that gap is filled and information is, is given both ways. Mm -hmm. And so Texas Trees Foundation, they're managing the green team. And so making sure everyone has a say from the campus end. And then once the parks are open, so we're, just so you have an idea of what the timeline is, we spend about a full year at each school. So our first cohort consisted of six schools, and I'm currently working on the second. So there, we're still in the middle of engagement. So our first group of schools, Texas Trees will be with them for a full other year to implement the cool schools curriculum. And so education really is the heartbeat of this program at its core um, and community, I will say, but because the teachers play such an active role around designing the outdoor classroom, around what curriculum they'll be using, the PE teacher tells us, you know, hey, we really need kids to practice their balance. Can we have some balancing elements in the playground? They play a role. And so they're all really excited about it because I, and I don't want to put words into any of our teachers' mouths, but I, as someone who worked adjacent to education in a classroom, I think it's very rare that external partners or other people come in and ask, what do you need? Mm -hmm. I think it's more of a directive question of like, oh, we need X, Y, Z. Can you do this? 
versus the opposite question, right? Of like, what do you need to make your classroom stronger? What do you need to make your um, life as an educator easier? And especially during COVID, I would say the outdoor classroom element has been something surprisingly um, innovative, which is funny because it was just truly like a fun element for schools. And now teachers are seeing as true necessities of like, yes. wow, we can take kids outside and do reading club, or we can actually do science class because we chose, one of our schools chose like a science um, lab table to go outside. And so they're going to be using that with their classes. And so, um, yes, I believe I answered all those points. You did. <laughs> the teachers do play an active role. And I, and I will say that's becoming one of my favorite elements because I, I don't work directly on the design. But to hear how teachers are going to be using it is a really fun uh, thing to see develop for sure. Have y'all had the program going on long enough to see any changes in the students' behavior since they hmm. are able to go outside and ex- I, I, and move around and not just sit at a desk and look at a computer and whatnot. Yes, definitely. So I have seen, I have like a few funny stories because I'm not in a class. A lot of us, unfortunately, I imagine you as well, we're, we're people who chose our jobs to be out in the world, <laughs> like <laughs> outside and doing things. And so a lot of us, including teachers and students, have been relegated to Zoom and a classroom. And so um, I think you know, while our program, we're at actually exactly a year, uh, our babies turned a year old. Um, <laughs> and so while I can't say I've seen a change in students as hopefully as much as we get to see a year later, mm-hmm. um, I will say just at a simple level to what you said, kids are so excited to get out of the building and to run towards that new playground because we have like one of our campuses, for example, didn't have enough play equipment for how much populate like increase of students they have had over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just more space for them to roam and um, play and run around. And I mostly had teachers relay to me that recess has become such a more of a special time in their day than before, Um, which I'm not surprised by considering that, you know, we were elementary schools and they're not meant to sit for that long. And so, yeah. yeah. And and, and to see teachers use the, the outdoor classrooms as well has been really wonderful because I think it's given them more flexibility and still feel safe to work. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I want to do, I do want to put a little plug in for DISD, Dallas Independent School District, for those of you listening who aren't in Dallas. And that's actually how I got connected with Elise is thanks to one of our awesome trustees, Ben Mackey. And I've been working um, with DISD along with several other community members on trying to put together you know, a package on different sustainability policies to adopt. And so DISD is really trying very hard. And obviously we all have room for improvement, but I can, I have seen recently a very concerted effort and shift really in trying to be more environmental and, and include these sustainability policies and look at it from a more holistic perspective of, you know, what's it doing for the environment, but also our students. And I just wanted to put that plug in because they are, are doing some great things. And obviously the partnership with y'all and Texas trees, I mean, it's, it's, there's some great things happening. And kudos to DISD. You got this. I'm like, I give a plug too. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and as someone who grew up in all DISD schools, it's really fun as an adult to work with schools that I had friends who went to and, you know, in the neighborhoods I grew up and to see how much DISD is investing in schools 
and students has just been so exciting to watch. So. Yeah. And this is a huge school district. It, isn't it the sixth largest school district in the United States? Mm-hmm. Yes, no. but the largest school district in the United States that has adopted 100% renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Really? Ooh. Yes. Ooh. Peeps. DISD is doing that. stuff. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. Yes. I need, I'm, yes, we have our opinions, but sometimes you forget all the great work because you focus on like, well, what else is there to do? So yes, yes. that's a great plug to <laughs> Anyways, well, that was my little <laughs> plug for Dallas because you can't, we, us Dallasites, we love putting our little plugs in. <laughs> it's true. At all times. Well, <laughs> Elise, before we start wrapping it up, because my mom always has a question for our guests. But I have one more question oh, before okay. I get to that question. Well, then I'll ask mine, then you can ask too. At <laughs> <laughs> least we're not going to let you go here. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you would like to share in terms of the importance of this either high level or nitty gritty that people that you want people to know about? And if the answer is no, then I'm super happy that we asked you all the important questions. I have a few few different thoughts, but I'm like, where to start? (laughs) Well, I think the first thing is that if you want to get involved or if you want to learn more or talk to me directly, I'm always available. I'm sure y'all can share out my information or email or whatever. Um, But I will say the biggest thing is that even if you don't live near a cool school park or a potential one, that these spaces are so important to the like health and future of our communities and our collective health as a city. Um, and I always like to make sure that, and I know your, your podcast focuses on very different issues, but also understanding that this is a racial equity issue as well. Mm-hmm. That's tied to environmental justice and um, food justice and all these different issues. A lot of our communities not only struggle with the foundational issue of like lack of green space, right. But other resources as well. So if you're, um, and this is not directly tied to my program, but as you know, we a lot of the great work happens locally. And maybe speaking for myself, but I think growing up in Dallas and outside of these big coastal cities, I always thought, oh, well, you have to go to New York to make change. You have to go to DC to do these things. But there's so many wonderful things happening in Dallas. And so whether it's coming to me and working with my cool schools program and all of our <laughs> wonderful schools or getting involved just around your corner and doing what you can, I, I, I want to make a plug for that. There are a lot of wonderful people doing great work in the city. And so um, just happy to be talking with you and yeah, just continue the learning process. Right. So I love it. I love it. And what are the long range goals for this program? What are y'all wanting to do, you know, in five, 10, 20 years from now? That's such a great question. So our program is fully funded for three years. Um, we did go through the bonds. We had a bond approval for adding more schools and more years to the Dallas program. And so really the goal is to make sure that as many areas that need a park um, get one. If, if someone wants to be a cool school, we want to make sure that happens. I think on a broader level, five, 10 years is we have had interest from other Texas cities of um, especially like the city of Austin or El Paso or you know, other metropolitan areas that would love to be part of this program. And so I think that's our dream of being able to have the, the funding and, um, you know, I think voting energy from city leaders of saying this is important for our city as well. And so, you know, my dream personally would be like, wow, yeah, I'm going to go to El Paso this week to do a cool school. And then Austin this week, I doubt <laughs> that will happen. But I think long term, I would really love Texas to make this a priority um, for a lot of reasons, students, our public health, mm-hmm. um, long-term environmental challenges. I, that's, I think, overall our 
goal and dream for the, this program. So I can totally see that. I can. I can see you zipping around, doing all those cool schools, and having Dallas as the blueprint, which what Dallasite doesn't love that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm going to get my Bucky shirt ready. And yes. <laughs> I love that. If people don't know what Bucky's is, it is oh. this mega. What, what it's a gas, gas station <laughs> with the shopping and food. Oh my gosh. That there's probably what 50 stations for ga- pumping gas. It's just, so they're only in Texas, but but I do think you have to describe the unique joy that comes upon seeing the Bucky's sign. Yes, yes. it's not just a gas station. <laughs> you yes, it's wonderful. Thank so. you, Elise. <laughs> my mom did not do it credit. It's like an I amazing community place <laughs> okay let's tie it right I think back that around. might be taken a little far but <laughs> well actually when my in-laws came to visit they were here for a month and they wanted to go to Bucky's like three times because they just loved <laughs> they're from New Zealand they're, yeah sorry they're from New Zealand and they just loved like seeing all the you know items that they had at the store it's really a fun place you can literally spend like an hour just perusing and their uh, beef jerky area is quite, <laughs> <laughs> quite awesome too. From a sustainability, I'm a, fudge, I'm a fudge person. Mm. So Did we digress? I love on a yeah. on a sustainability <laughs> podcast. We were talking about how we love a gas station and their beef jerky. <laughs> Bucky's shirt with pride, oh. Elise. <laughs> I we did get some wine glasses for our wedding present. They have Bucky's on them. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all, it's a it's a thing. It's a cultural thing. We're proud. <laughs> oh gosh, are we ready for the final answer? Do Which we need to talk about the beef final, jerky and Bucky's? The, <laughs> the final question will be slightly ironic coming after a Bucky's conversation, but I like it so much more. Oh gosh. So Elise, what do you think is the most important thing each person can do to reverse global warming? That is a unique question coming after Bucky's. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will say back to what I, I, I kind of referred to in a different way, but I think local is the most important. And I will say one find as a personal um, consumer is that, and I'm sure maybe you've talked about this on pockets before, is that, yes, we can make individual changes. We can recycle. We can eat less meat. We can do these very tangible solutions. But a lot of it comes at a bigger level. Yes, all of us can recycle all lives. And it's very important. But I think we have to hold... Um, our local officials accountable. We have to be, be willing and brave enough for me anyway, to phone call, to email, to pay attention to what's happening locally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were talking about Dallas earlier and we are very proud of Dallas and a lot of stuff that's happening on the ground, but you know, they had an environmental policy that recently went through. I admit I didn't read it through as much as I should have. And so I would really task people to reverse. Yes. It's not maybe as fast as you want it to be to reverse global warming, but I think the first step to say what's happening in your neighborhood, what's happening on your block, and like how can you be the person at a town hall to say, hey, I'm not okay with this. Global warming is very is something that worries me, and I want to make a change in. And so I think always going back to the community role of taking a taking a stand for for what you want to change. So not as tangible and as fast as I wish it was, but um, yes. But it's it and it's interesting, right? The 
the line between personal action, but also pressure for larger corporations for governmental policy. And as you said, we need both. It's not either or. Um, And one thing that gives me hope, too, is I believe a lot of times, not always, and the added pressure is much needed, but a lot of times those small personal actions are what spark that larger change, right? Like governments sometimes, but definitely private corporations respond to consumer demand. So apply that pressure, as you said, in multiple different ways, but definitely locally, because we can all speak up locally. But those small changes, although not enough on their own, do also add to that larger puzzle. It's a piece in the puzzle. It's of course, climate change is a very intricate puzzle. <laughs> but it is. Yes. It's almost like where to begin, which is what I admire about your podcast and what y'all do is just talking about it and learning more and figuring out what the role that you can play is. And, you know, this might be getting us a tangent, but it reminded me that individual action of how it changes kind of a larger unit is the concept of, you know, replacement meat products. Like, I know that sounds silly, but I'm always fascinated by trying to be vegetarian in high school and thinking I was going to die to now being a whole <laughs> industry that's completely revolutionized the food, the food mm-hmm. sector, right? And so that's an example of a lot of people starting small and it's becoming lucrative. And so finally people are paying attention and saying, okay, what else do we need to change? Right. And yeah. so and totally tangential, but I think that it is pretty fascinating. So crossing my fingers that more things happen like that. Awesome. Elise, thank you so, so much for spending the time with us. And we will obviously link all of all of the links in the show notes. And so if people want to reach out to you, they will be able to. But thank you again. We have learned so much from you. And I've just, you know, I'm inspired to go speak out and go help. And if y'all need any little educational something from Mother Daughter Earth in any of your parks, you give us a ring. We will be there. We'd love to help. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time and expertise and your enthusiasm. And I just, you've, I'm now going to look at parks in a completely different way. Yes. 100%. It was so wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Thank you.